0: Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talks series. This episode was recorded in September 2020 as part of Galway International Arts Festival's Autumn Edition, which took place against the backdrop of COVID-19 and marked a return to Galway's Black Box Theatre for the first time since March. Inevitably, live events look very different this year. For some talks, we were joined by a socially distanced audience. Others went out to online-only audiences. We thank you now for joining us here on the podcast and becoming yet another member of our extended audience. The first Thought Talk series at GIAF's 2020 Automatician were presented in association with NUI Galway. The United States election in November of this year will be one of the most consequential in many years, many decades. Donald Trump has created a bitterly divided country with racism, nationalism, and corporate greed on the rise, and the free press, the rule of law, and slow progress towards equality all under attack. Can Trump be beaten by Joe Biden? If he is, will he accept the result? If not, what then? To engage with these crucial questions, Marion McKeown of the Sunday Business Post One of our most acute and well-informed reporters on the U.S. political situation will be in conversation with Larry Donnelly, lecturer in law at NUI Galway, and frequent media commentator on U.S. affairs. Over to you, Larry, thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Katrina. I suppose as a first point, just to to, to congratulate the organizers of the Arts Festival for pulling off such a wonderful job under the circumstances, so a real shout out to to everybody who's worked so hard to make this a a success. Um, We're gonna, Marion and I are gonna talk for about 50 minutes, we're hoping. We could probably stay here till the wee hours talking about American politics in this election, Uh, but we're gonna try to keep it to 50 minutes and then we're going to open it up to questions, both you here in the the black box, uh, and to our online audience who want Want to ask Marion some questions. Um, just by way of very brief introduction, I won't add too much to what uh, Katrina has said about Marion, but I would highly recommend uh, her work in the Business Post every Sunday. Uh, Marion is on the ground, oftentimes as much as she can be in the context of a pandemic, but she makes you feel like you're in the room, uh, whether it's at a Trump rally or whatever it might be. Uh, she writes that lyrically. Uh, and I'd also recommend highly uh, her weekly jousts with conservative commentator Cal Thomas, who's also become a friend of mine, uh, on Today FM with Matt Cooper every every Tuesday uh, around 5.45. In case you haven't listened before, it is fantastic radio uh, every week. Uh, so with that, it's great to be with you again, Marion. Um, the title of the, of our conversation really is Will Trump win again? Uh, it's the question I think is on the whole world's mind. Uh, so I'm not gonna wait or waste any time. I'm gonna put that question directly to you. Will Trump win again?
2: Whoa, Larry, <laughs> I, I hope you're not looking for a single word answer. Before, before well, I'm not looking at the question, I promise, you. but before I answer, uh, can I add my voice to yours in thanking the Arts Festival organizers and the indefatigable Katrina Crow, And I mispronounce that always, but I mean formidable. And, uh, and all the fantastic crew for putting this together. And I really, really wish I was there. I, I loved it last year. So uh, it's wonderful to be able to take part, even virtually. And thanks to everybody for tuning in, uh, or indeed for being there as well. And and thank you to you, Larry, as well. Now, back to Trump. Uh, Trump certainly could win again. Uh, there's, uh, I-, I find that The Democrats rarely learn from their mistakes and and their mistakes at the moment, I think, are almost like they were in 2016. Uh, And with a reference to their mistakes in 2004, which I'll get to, uh, they look at national polls. At the moment, Trump is leading in the national polls. I beg your pardon. Joe Biden is leading in the national polls by between seven and nine percent, depending on which poll you look at. Now that goes up and down. It's been shrinking a little bit post-convention, but the national polls are irrelevant. It is the swing state polls, the six to 10 states. uh, I would say Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona. And I would certainly add to that, um, which I'm sure you would Larry as well, Nevada and Minnesota, which is quite an interesting one to watch at the moment. Uh, Donald Trump's followers are going nowhere. Donald Trump's base is going, Though he is not going to lose a single vote. You know, people get so caught up in the dozen books that have come out in the last week alone. The fact that Mary Trump, his niece, has told us numerous things about his childhood, that he stole his bricks from his little brother and bullied him. Is anyone surprised by that? None of this has any effect on people who are living in the states who are outside of the Beltway, outside of New York, outside of Washington, D.C., and who are literally worried sick about catching coronavirus, about not having the health care to cover it if they do, about losing their jobs if they haven't already lost them, and about how they're going to juggle keeping their children at home from school while trying to hold on to their jobs. About 40, about 40 million Americans um, live on the borderline of poverty, that they really are just getting by paycheck to paycheck. Uh, really, whether or not Trump violated the, H- the Hatch Act in the White House or whether or not some- Somebody is writing a book about something unspeakable he did twenty years ago. Americans don't care. People who loathe Trump already loathe him. People who I said who who are his base, who they're more entrenched. What I've found now is that they're actually more entrenched than they were in twenty sixteen. So he's certainly got about forty percent of the vote, absolutely guaranteed. He won last time with forty six point two percent. So could he win? Absolutely. Will he win? I think this is a really unpredictable race. And I think really only a fool would, would predict
1: Okay, we're, we're going to unpack lots of what you just said okay. uh, <laughs> over the course of the next uh, 45 minutes or so. But I want to return to a, a fundamental question first. And, and this is something that, that uh, lots of people in this country have asked me. And, and the question is, where did it all go wrong? And when I ask you that, you know, America, where did it all go wrong? And when I ask you that, I don't mean that in a partisan ideological basis. I mean, the reality is America's elected Republicans before, elected Democrats before, elected conservatives, elected liberals, but electing somebody like Donald Trump, whatever you think of his politics, is quite unprecedented. How and why did we get to this point?
2: Okay, you know, I think that it is unprecedented, Larry, but it's also on a smaller scale, not so unprecedented because America loves showbiz. Now, I remember years ago, I think it was James Carville, who was the legendary um, one of Bill Clinton's, you know, young guys, uh, young guns who, who managed a successful 1992 campaign. And he said Americans vote on the basis of who they want to look at on their TV screens for the next four years. And I think Americans, this is simplistic, This, but this would explain why they may have selected Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor of California, which has the fifth largest um, economy in the world. It may explain why they elected Ronald Reagan. Now, I'm not comparing Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. But also that sort of showbiz, the they like dynasties. My personal theory is that they... Americans who are weaned too soon from the teeth of the British monarchy, and that really they have a hankering for a sort of a quasi monarchical, hence, they pick these dynasties the Bushes, the Kennedys, and as far as the Trumps are concerned now, the Trumps. But to, to, to get into this a little bit more seriously, I do recall after 2008 and, and the the catastrophic impact of the fiscal meltdown on ordinary Americans, you know, on Americans who had sort of middle-class Americans, Americans who weren't making a lot of money, who didn't have savings, who didn't have stocks and they, they had no cushion. Now, America came back um, under Obama, it, it recovered. It clawed its way back very slowly. But a lot of those jobs never came back. A lot of those families never recovered. And they really felt like they were forgotten. And I'm not talking about people in, you know, on, on either state. I'm talking about people in Nebraska. I'm talking about people in the, in the central states, in places like Arizona, in Nevada. And the just dis- that they felt, and I spoke to so many of them in two thousand sixteen and again now, where they lost their houses, their houses were were foreclosed back in in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine two thousand and ten uh, they never got them back they're now living with family members still, or they're renting crappy houses, and they're struggling to pay that rent. Their jobs that they had, 120 grand jobs a year with benefits, they're still stacking shelves in Walmart a lot of them. They still haven't. Blue collar Americans, when they lost their jobs, they went down the ladder, didn't get jobs at a similar level. And they are looking... And they see, they look at the banks, they look at all the CEOs, they look at the 1% and the 10% and they think, damn it, they have all made money out of this. None of them were held to account. We're the ones who are suffering. And they did not feel that Obama and the Democrats spoke to them. They didn't feel that they recognised their pain because Democrats are not good at saying, they're not good at articulating it. Obama was not good at connecting with poor rural Americans who were desperate. The Democrats can rightly be seen as condescending towards a lot of those Americans. And if you humiliate people or if you ignore them, they will react negatively. Now, Donald Trump, this was the con. And Donald Trump has has done so many cons in his life I'm reading the Michael Cohen book at the moment and I do recommend it because not because it's it's <laughs> of its literary merit but because he has an insight into Trump that other people don't and there's one part of the book Larry and where he says that it's about the WWF now that World um, Heavyweight Wrestling Federation is is a fake it's 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 sort of like Trump it's a Trump top outrage fake wrestling fake everything. And people love it. And Donald Trump set up this scam with the the head of it, a guy called Vince McMahon, for a huge event in Michigan, 10,000 people. And the scam they set up was that he was going to stride into the ring with his big red tie and his big navy coat. And he was going to walk up to Vince McMahon, who was seen as this powerful Top dog. And he was going to slap him hard across the face and say, I've just bought your company and you're fired. Because at the time, of course, The Apprentice was huge. And then he was going to sell the company back to McMahon for double what he had allegedly paid for it. Of course, the whole thing was fantasy. But anyway, um, Cohen recounts how he did this. And he said this happened in Michigan and the crowd, which was a largely white, poor blue-collar crowd went absolutely berserk because they were gunning to somebody get that slap across the face, metaphorical or actual, uh, for what had happened to them. For They wanted someone to pay. And they really felt that Donald Trump Ironically, this New York billionaire who really only cares about Donald Trump and all things Trump, that he was going to be the one who would set things straight for them, that he would land those slaps on the right people. And I think it came from a mixture of despair and also cynicism that they had been electing you know politicians forever, conventional politicians. And they were just screwed every time. And I think they really felt that Donald Trump, because they believe the myth of the Trump business, they believe the myth of Trump's Midas touch. They don't look into the bankruptcies and the crooked deals and the lawsuits and the fact that his father bailed him out numerous times. And they they buy the image because they want to buy that, because that is essentially the American dream that anyone can have the yachts and the planes and the wealth and the model wife and what have you. And he really did know how to speak to. Now, Michael Cohen in his book disparagingly referred to these people as white trash, and I don't think that's fair. Um, but Donald Trump knew how to speak to people in America. He set up one rally I was at um, in 2016. I love the poorly educated. And the roar that came literally almost raised the roof because these people are tired of being condescended to and as I say there are a lot of them in America there are a lot of very poor people in America there are a lot of people in America who have very little hope other than a sort of a lottery ticket chance at or fame and for them Donald Trump represents something that even though they know they may never have it themselves at least they think he's going to beat up the people who are stopping them from getting it
1: those points are all very well made. The the, the one thing I still am searching for, and this is Trump's biggest political Mm -hmm. feat in my view, is that he plays the game by different rules to everybody else. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that effectively is he's totally impervious to criticism, to negative revelations in books, all the things that you've said. Nothing damages him, he seems to be absolutely bulletproof politically. And I, I know this from personal experience from talking to people, especially women, who heard mm-hmm. the things that he said, yet still voted for him. Why do you think he's so bulletproof? Why, what, what explains that?
2: Um, I think we can go back to what he said in 2016, that his supporters, he could go out and shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and his would still support him. Now, it's not everyone, Larry, and I think this is where America has become, and it's so much on the brink it is in a cold civil war and I, it's so much on the brink of something that could turn very, very nasty uh, because for the 40 to 45% of voters who absolutely support Donald Trump, and I will get to the promises that he has fulfilled in a moment, there are about 55% of Americans who absolutely despise him. They loathe him. They they absolutely abhor him and what he does and that is where the tension is. So it's it's really what. Or the other, and America has gone to two extremes. Where I, there are people who would not vote for Donald Trump if their lives depended on it, and there are people who likewise would not vote for Joe Biden if you put a gun to their head. And I, I think that that is where America has reached a breaking point. Whereas before, you had the Reagan Democrats, you had people who voted for Barack Obama who were moderates and independents, even some Republicans who thought, "Let's give him a chance," you know. And I think America was much more willing to meet in the middle. Now it's it's literally sides of the extremes. And that is to me the single most worrying thing. But also if you look at what Donald Trump has done in his four years, now you or I our, the viewers may not like them, but he has kept a number of his promises to his constituents. He has if he has a huge base amongst the evangelicals, and the big evangelical thing is to get Supreme Court judges and conservative judges across the federal bench in America to really just push all of the liberal judges off the benches. And so Donald Trump, the, the, the freedom to practice religion as they see it is under threat. Now it's not under threat but Donald Trump is telling them that it is. Uh, And also pro-life, they are hugely, hugely anti-abortion and they really believe that it is worth having Donald Trump because it means they will hold their nose and vote for him or they tell me frequently, and I was told this so many times in Arizona, that the Lord works through imperfect people. And they genuinely seem to believe that, that Donald Trump is the person that they see who is going to end abortion in America and he has promised them that repeatedly. He has taken a number of steps to to reduce access to abortion, and he has appointed two vehemently anti-abortion judges to the Supreme Court. Now, if Donald Trump wins a second term, at the moment, they balance on this U.S. Supreme Court, which will have a far greater long-term impact on American lives than even another term for Donald Trump he will very likely elect another two. There are another two judges elected to the Supreme Court in the next four years because Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 87 now, she's battling cancer again Stephen Breyer has made it clear also in his 80s that he wants to retire Uh, that would mean that there would be seven conservative judges versus two liberal judges on the Supreme Court bench Uh, and even allowing that the Chief Justice John Roberts who was appointed by George W. Bush and does try to hold the centrist line um, it would be a wash for the Conservatives and Roe v. Wade which introduced um, abortion basically would be overturned Uh, and that is what the evangelicals want and a number of other things as well to do with school choice, to do with gay rights, to do with a whole bunch of things. They think that Donald Trump is the quickest, surest route to bring America back to where it was in the 1950s, which is pretty much what most of them want when it comes to cultural issues. So that's one area that Donald Trump has has, um, delivered in. The gun brigade and the guns and God people are closely connected. He is a staunch advocate the Second Amendment and guns. And, you know, he really has nailed his colours to the mast on that one. No matter what school shooting happens, no matter what outrage, he sticks with the NRA line and the NRA are 100% behind him. He's also made it safe for white nationalists to basically come out from from under their various rocks. He's made it safe to hate and vilify and resent immigrants. And, you know, he he hasn't built 300 miles of his wall. That just didn't happen. He's built five miles of his wall and he's patched up a pre-existing 295 miles. But he that who want this wall built, that he is building that wall and that he has told immigrants. To get lost, and that he is stopping them from coming in, and that that is the right thing to do, and then for the one percent, I mean, he's been a godsend. Corporations benefited hugely from his massive tax reforms. The top one percent, the top ten percent, have done really, really well under Donald Trump. The stock market is still booming. God knows why, um, and you know their four hundred one ks are really, really healthy. So for a lot of people, um, Donald. Delivered. And then you have the energy lobby. Uh, you know he's he's rolled back all the environmental regulations. He's rolling back business regulations. Wall Street likes that. Um, so. If you're a Donald Trump supporter and if you support those things, I'm not making a judgment on whether or not they're objectively good things to support. But, you know, they've got a guy in the White House who's doing what he said by and large. He's doing very little for the blue collar, ironically, for his for his staunchest um, base. He's really only giving them hate. That's all he's given them. He's given them hate and a reason to beat up on people that they see as being inferior to them, as in immigrants, and you know, mainly. So they've gotten the roughest end of the deal. But for everybody else, as I say, the evangelicals, the gun lobby, the super rich, Donald Trump has delivered and then some.
1: Okay, we'll come back to a couple of those themes. I might push back on one or two things that you said um, okay. in those comments. But but I, I want to move from, I suppose, a more sociological point of view uh, to a more uh, process or institutional matters that I think are going to be really, really important in the context of, the, of, the, of this election. Mm-hmm. And I know they might be slightly wonkish, but I think with this audience, we're safe enough. I think they like their politics. Um, one of those first that I want to come to is... Uh, how this election is going to unfold, which I think again to use the unprecedented word is an important mm-hmm. one. Uh, again, we're talking about voting during a time of pandemic. We're talking about majority mm-hmm. and perhaps vastly major, the vast majority of people either voting before election day on November third in person or voting by postal ballot beforehand. How do you see that playing out? We know the president has made a lot of criticisms of it and thrown a lot of things up in the air. How do you see that playing out? And again, I think the the really important point is here, get out the vote is something people are familiar with in American elections. Get out the vote now is gonna be a months long process, not a day process.
2: That's right and a lot of people have already voted. Now there has been a big, there is a potential for chaos there's potential for absolute chaos with this election because of the, the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Largely, people are very anxious about voting in person. Uh, so they very likely, a lot more people are going to vote by post, um, by It's called absentee ballot. There's no difference anymore. You can vote by post. You can request a ballot. Donald Trump has been saying that this will deliver a rigged election, that these uh, ballots will be phony, they'll be fake, that they'll be harvested by people and sent in. He's claiming there will be all kinds of treachery with this. Now, that is more than likely the case. There have been studies on voter fraud and on postal ballots. There are always some mistakes in every election, but it's not widespread. Is it going to be a million illegal or illig- illegitimate votes? No, it's not. There might be handfuls here or there. But Donald Trump has already got his supporters with their hackles up, believing that this is going to be a rigged election because of the mail in vote. Now, the mail in vote has been further complicated by the fact that uh, Donald Trump's hand picked Postmaster General, a guy called Louis DeJoy, who was a huge Trump fundraiser now, in fact, facing criminal investigation because of his enthusiasm for raising money for Trump uh, in violation of of some federal election rules. Uh, he, He went about dismantling really a lot of the postal service under the guise of making cost effective cuts. Well, the post office in America is a bit like the army. It's not supposed to make a profit. It's a public service. And so he did a number of things before he was stopped a couple of weeks back. One of the most obvious being that he literally physically removed the postal box. You know, the little blue American postal boxes that you have all over the country. They were literally unscrewed, taken, put in the back of vans and put in in landfills. Now, those postal boxes are not coming back. Uh, He also removed massive sorting machines from 700 of the busiest postal sorting areas in America. These machines sorted millions of letters a day. So that as well is going to add to the chaos. I think the biggest danger here is that, yes, there will be chaos. The voting, the counting of the votes will be slower because a lot of mail-in ballots will still have to be counted after November 3rd, and that that could create a vacuum. And I remember covering my first election was in 2000, and it was the Bush-Gore election. And that everyone may remember the hanging chags, or they, they may not. They may not have even been born. But the, the, the chaos over which votes could be cancelled, which couldn't, and the confusion, uh, and George Bush and his advisors leaped into that very, very quickly to declare themselves the winner, and. Al Gore did concede and then unconceded, but they they seized that moment to portray the fact that George Bush had won this election, Al Gore, it was sour grapes, there was something called the Brooks Brothers riot, which I remember so clearly, and it was all these middle-aged and and 30-something white men in their shirts and ties and pinstripe suits, and they were charging into, into into ballot counting districts and really... You know, like the fanciest riot you've ever seen, but it, it did intimidate people and it did make people think, oh, my God, this could turn violent. Now, you can imagine this time in 2020, if there is a vacuum of information on the night of November 3rd, if it's not clear who the winner is, if there's an opportunity for Donald Trump to declare himself the winner, That's exactly what he will do. He will announce that he's the winner, and that that's it. And then anything that comes after that, he will scam. It's unfair. It's rigged. We could be looking at, as I say, because of delays in in actually determining who the winner is, of possible weeks. And there could be protests. There could be civil unrest. There could be legal actions, which could even end up in the Supreme Court again. Um, And. There will almost certainly be civil unrest and violence on the streets if this happens because this is where the country is going. And I say that without any exaggeration or false alarming because I have seen how recently the clashes between Black Lives Matter protesters, the encouragement of Donald Trump to send his supporters armed with guns to take on, as they call it, the Black Lives Matter protesters, there. The country, the antipathy between Trump supporters and the rest of the country is so acute and it's really simmering at the moment at boiling point. And I'm very, very concerned that if that is the scenario that we're in for a very, very um, difficult time. Now, there could also be a split outcome again. It's possible that Donald Trump will win the Electoral College vote again and that Joe Biden could win the popular vote. That's more likely than the other way. If that happens, Donald Trump has won. He's won. You know, that's that they're the rules, and that's just how it goes. There is also a possibility that Joe Biden, uh, because I'm such a sad wonk, I love doing the the potential electoral college math. There is a possibility that if Joe Biden just wins the blue states that are a given and takes uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Just three of those swing states, that he will get 278 electoral college votes. Now, you need 270 to win. So it would push him over. It wouldn't be a huge win, but it would be enough. Um, and then if he takes Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona, and I think he could take Arizona, uh, that would bring him up to about 332 electoral college votes, which is a landslide on the electoral college. And it's a decisive victory. Now, the Democrats have been fantasizing forever about winning North Carolina. But I'm going to digress into something, Larry, very quickly here, and I'll try and be brief. Please, because I, I want to get that, on to it. Okay. Oh, yeah. we. I, I know you've got, I know you're a fan of the electoral college. The... the um, the Trump remarks that emerged about the military, where he called military um, soldiers who had died in service, in combat, uh, are allegedly losers and suckers and, and scorned their sacrifice. Donald Trump's military vote is one of the most solid aspects of his base. And these people really... Like, these are the young guys and young women who leave school at 17, 18, who don't have qualifications, who don't have a chance of going to college. And they are Trump's base, and they they... Trump. Now, to hear that he had come out and mocked the sacrifices of maybe their brothers, their sons, their daughters, their husbands, their wives, really, really, I think, had a big impact. The Military Times did a survey. Uh, a couple of weeks back, and it showed that Donald Trump, who got about seventy percent of the military vote in 2016, and that is millions of votes, this time only thirty-seven percent of the military said that they were going to vote for him. Forty-one percent said they were going to vote for Joe Biden. Now, normally, the military regards is forty percent Republican. independent and about 18% Democrat. But there was something about what Donald Trump said that really, I think, struck at the heart of military families there. So we'll see how that plays out. Now, North Carolina has 115,000 military families on its bases. Even if they just stay at home, or even if half of them just stay at home, that could hand the state to Joe Biden. When you think that Al Gore only lost Florida, which has 106,000 military families, by 347 votes in 2000. You see how something like this, I don't think Bob Woodward's book, which everybody's talking about, is going to make a difference. I really don't. But I think the fact that these military people who who saw Trump as their champion and their guy, that they believe that he was actually mocking them and sneering at them behind their back, I think that that could have an impact.
1: It could well. It certainly, certainly they'll be pivotal uh, in November. I do want to push back slightly on the Electoral College and just talk about it, because it is something that fascinates people and bewilders people, I think, uh, in this part of the world and in other parts of the world, as well as in the United States, as to how it operates in the sense that uh, even people who think that Donald Trump could win, most of them don't think he can win the popular vote. Uh, they think that he'll win the Electoral College vote. Uh, and the reality is the Electoral College in presidential elections in the United States, there are really 50 elections elections in one, Uh, and the sense is that uh, all states have their own individual elections and it's balanced out because it's a federal system. So the likes of Wyoming, which has 580,000 people, has three electoral college votes, two United States senators and one member of the House of Representatives, so as such they have three electoral college votes. California, where you're talking to us from, has forty million people. Uh, they have fifty five electoral college votes because they have fifty three members of the House of Representatives, representatives, and two uh, members of the United States Senate. So because California is a much larger state, it has roughly uh, about twenty times the say in electoral college terms than Wyoming does. However, if we were to break it down strictly on the numbers, California should have eighty Ooh. times the say that Wyoming does, and yeah, the, well, founders, the founders did this because they, they recognized a the balance between small and large states, rural and urban, et cetera, uh, and they wanted all those interests to be represented. What I want you to do is first, and I'm a supporter of the Electoral College. I think it's worked well for the United States and continues to work well. You, I wanted two things from you, Marion. First, tell me, tell me why I'm wrong, uh, and then second, mm-hmm. uh, tell me uh, wh- why you think or if you think the consequent focus on battleground states is right and proper in the context of a presidential election.
2: Okay, Larry. Now, th- this is where we absolutely disagree. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off by saying the Electoral College was dreamed up in 1798, I think it was, or thereabouts, at a time when only white landowning men could vote in elections. Now, it was decided that these Sort of super white landowning men. That uh, 538 of them. It, it was. If you look at why it was introduced, it was introduced because they were afraid that sir educated white landowning men than they could pick some populist thug for president. Well, <laughs> guess what happened in 2016? The electoral college thwarted the popular vote. There were three million more votes for Hillary Clinton. And it did exactly what the electoral, the founding fathers had feared, that, that it, it, um, it actually did the thing they thought it would prevent. It gave a, a path to the White House, to somebody who would not otherwise have won fair and square. So, for example, of Wyoming and California half a million people thereabouts in Wyoming, three electoral college votes, uh, 40 million people in California. Now, if I live in Wyoming, my vote as an American citizen, uh, which I'm not, is worth 3.75 times that of my vote in California. Now, the definition of a democracy should be that everyone's vote is equal. Everyone's vote is of equal value. So why should... um, say Dick Cheney who lives in Wyoming. Why should Dick Cheney's vote be worth 3.7 times my vote if I live in California? Uh, And you know, it was a myth, I think, Larry, as well. The other thing, while we're on the subject, I'll I'll have another quick beef. I don't think it's in any way fair that that all states have equal representation in the Senate. The Senate is far more powerful than the House. It is the it's what decides. So, if you figure that Wyoming has one senator for every 250,000 people or thereabouts, California has one senator for every 20 million people, how is that representative? You know, I, I think that there needs to be a fundamental reworking of this whole system. And it was interesting a while back, uh, the former governor of Maine, Paul Lepage, said, the reason we need to keep the electoral college is that if we don't, minorities will end up choosing the president of the United States. And this is the reason if the electoral college didn't exist, Republicans wouldn't have been in the White House since 1992. The last Republican senator, uh, the last Republican president would have been George H.W. Bush in 1998, it's only because of the electoral college that Al Gore was kept out of the White House, it's only because of the Electoral College that Hillary Clinton was kept out of the White House. They both won the popular vote. So America needs to decide, in my view, is it a democracy or is it not? Because if it's a democracy, everyone's votes should count equally and the popular vote should decide. And then this other myth that if you didn't have the Electoral College, that the candidates wouldn't go to any of the the smaller states they don't go there anyway. (laughs) I can tell you this for a fact. I don't know the last time a presidential candidate went to Wyoming or Montana or Nebraska or North or South Dakota or any of these places, they don't bother because they know they're in the bag for them if they're Republican. And if they're Democratic, they know there's no chance they're going to flip them. So what happens is you have half a dozen to 10 states that are in play. And this is where the presidential candidates completely flock to for the electoral cycle and nobody else gets a look in. So as I said, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, Nevada, possibly Minnesota, one or two other places, that they get all the love and all the attention and all the promises and all the pledges that they'll do this for them and that for them, and nobody else gets a look in. So it really does skew American politics. And I think it feeds into the cynicism that has taken root in America, because Americans were very idealistic about their politics, I found, and very patriotic and very passionate. And they have become cynical. And I think that the Electoral College feeds into that, because if you voted for Hillary Clinton, and you know she got votes than Trump. You think, well, what's he doing in the White House? It, it doesn't seem like a fair democratic system. Well, okay, I, Larry, I, I, I've said my piece. I, I, I finished my rant. <laughs>
1: I, I won't push. Back, I won't push back much more, other than to say that candidates <laughs> okay. do go. To, the, other than to say the candidates do go to New Hampshire an awful lot, which is a pretty small state, uh, uh, and the in and the, the primary season. And, and, and that, and that uh, I think, an already polarized and divided United States uh, probably wouldn't be best served if all the attention were focused on the more populous states as a, and, denied, and people from smaller states uh, were denied what they already see as a smaller state, but we'll leave that to one side. Uh, what I want to okay. hear from you about is, in terms of battleground states, and I think this is where you can give viewers a real insight here, uh, one of the key battleground states this time around uh, is going to be Arizona, uh, a state that, that mm-hmm. Donald Trump won in 2016. But as of the latest real clear politics, aggregate polling has Joe Biden ahead by almost 5%. You were on the ground in Arizona very, very recently. Yeah. Could you give us a little info on the, the lie of the land there and what you see happening?
2: Okay, well, the first thing that I saw happening was Arizona was still reeling from the battering it took from the coronavirus pandemic in uh july and august where where the death rate spiraled it was the hot point in the whole country at one point and it, it's there's a lot of fear there's a lot of uncertainty there's there's a lot of healthcare is the number one concern in arizona with everyone i spoke to even with Trump's most diehard supporters. And, you know, it was interesting because when I spoke with Trump supporters, they they were literally mocking. And, and, you know, in a way, I kind of get it. They were saying, oh, my God, the Hatch Act. Now, the Hatch Act is, very briefly, the act that w- should have stopped Donald Trump from from holding his convention on the White House lawn, basically, on the South lawn. But it didn't. And they, they really were saying that they don't care. And it gets back to this thing, Larry. They don't care about Donald Trump breaking these laws. They don't care about him busting norms. They don't care about who writes what about him in books, they want jobs. They want healthcare, and they really and they want their kids to be back in school so that they can get back to work. So I think that they do feel overwhelmingly now, especially the, the. A lot of Arizona is made up of two groups: it's retirees and it's people who work in relatively low-paying jobs. And then you have your white militias, and you have a lot of people who. Feel very very strongly that people should not be able to cross the border unless they are legally entitled to do so, and you know which which is a reasonable position, and um, and and there is a cause for immigration reform, but but anyway, so Arizona, as I say, healthcare was the number one concern. Uh, with people I spoke with. They were angry with Donald Trump because they felt that he didn't take the coronavirus seriously enough. This is people who are not necessarily Democrats, who might be neutral, some of whom who may have not many voted for Trump the last time. And they thought that they were just suffering too much. They were like, the, the I saw lines to food banks in Arizona that were shocking. Uh, and Arizona is migrant population. It's low paid workers. They have no safety nets. A lot of them, can't vote so and i think this may be something to do it because there is a very cold calculation of who's going to vote and who isn't and people who have been made homeless by the coronavirus also are going, probably going to find it very difficult to vote and number, you know people who are stuck at home with small children aren't going to be able to get out and stand in line for eight hours so i think there's a lot of anxiety there um Joe Biden i didn't detect any massive level of enthusiasm for him whatsoever what i did detect was a yearning for some kind of normality to get off this roller coaster ride of the last 4 years just to have stability and something that approximates normality back in their lives They're, i don't think people are politically moving at all from from their positions i see no sign of meeting in the middle or moderation or you know, maybe of Trump supporters considering Biden, I see people who might stay at home or I see people who, independents, who would go with Biden. But as I say, mostly despair, fear, um I'm just real concerned about health care because Donald Trump is at the moment before the Supreme Court, or I should say his his Department of Justice is, and they're seeking to remove pre-existing conditions uh, from Obamacare to basically effectively gut it. Now, the only thing that has probably saved a lot of lives in in during this pandemic is the fact that people could access poor people could access good quality healthcare. And without that, the casualty rates would have been much higher. But I think there's also, just as in 2016, there was a feeling amongst people who lost their homes and jobs that Democrats didn't care. There's a feeling now that people who have lost family members to the coronavirus, and who have also lost their homes and jobs, that Donald Trump doesn't care. Not only does he not care, that he's denying that it's happening. And so there is a level of frustration there. But as I say, I spoke with many, many people who are still absolutely behind Donald Trump 100%. They think that he's the person who's going to bring back the economy. Uh, They do say repeatedly that Joe Biden is past it, that he's been around too long, that he's not with it. I heard a lot of the, the Republican Party talking points being trumped out. And even among Democrats who will absolutely vote for Joe Biden, there, was, there wasn't much energy or enthusiasm about Biden. They, of course, they want to see the end of Trump. But are they jumping up and down at the prospect of a Biden presidency? No, they're not. And I think this is a problem.
1: You, you were there. I'm going to put you on the spot. If you had to call Arizona, which way do you see it going?
2: i see with the senate haha i deflect quickly i see the senate going um Democrat, which i think is is going to be very important that we can get out uh i see biden may if it were today and this always has to be the caveat larry if it were today i think it would go biden but who knows what's going to happen in the next seven weeks because we've seen what happened in the last week alone anything can happen in the next seven weeks and i do think that if Donald Trump gets out stimulus checks, which you know, which even the Republicans are talking about almost as cash bribes, if every household gets a check for twelve or fifteen hundred dollars or two thousand dollars before the election, I think that may make people more inclined to vote Trump. But at the moment, there's a it's an absolute mess. The, the the coronavirus support packages that were agreed back in March have all petered out. Now people are people are hungry, and that is not an exaggeration. And the coronavirus rates have plateaued at around 40,000 a day with a 1,000 deaths a day. At this rate, it could be up to 400,000 dead people by the, by December. So I don't know. As I say, who knows what will emerge in the next seven weeks. But I do think that the Republicans are going to go hard after Joe Biden. And I think that they're, they're hoping that the Durham report will, will come out with something. And I think they will also use Hunter Biden back into the mix. And as, as a sign of Joe Biden's corruption and the Biden's corruption, et cetera. So it's going to get very, very ugly. And um, who knows, as I say, anything might happen in the next seven weeks.
1: Okay, okay, we'll talk about Joe Biden in a minute, but I want to put one question to you uh, r- r- flowing from Arizona. Um, Latinos are a big segment of the population in Arizona. Um, and one of the things you said earlier was that uh, Donald Trump has fanned the flames of white nationalism and other things. But just Mm -hmm. maybe to push back on that a little bit, the reality is the opinion polls show that anywhere between one-third and 40% of self-described Latinos, and these aren't all Cuban Americans Mm -hmm. who've traditionally been aligned with the Republican Party, between one-third and 40% of Latinos intend to vote for Donald Trump. Why do you think that's the case?
2: Uh, I I think, Larry, because a, a lot of the Latinos in America do not have the right to vote. A lot of because either because they're here on work visas or because they're undocumented. Uh, so a huge number of Latinos that you would think would be actually of a democratic constituency do not have voting rights. Now, Latinos who are, who do have voting rights have been here for decades, probably most of them. They have established small businesses. They have established their own industries. They, you know, and th- th- some of them are doing very, very well. And for these, they they like Trump's tax ideas. They like the Trump deregulation of business. And, you know, so I think that people who are at the bottom of the economic scale, if they're Minorities will absolutely vote democratic. But I think if you're Latino and you're a middle class Latino, and as I said, a lot of Latinos do, and, and you mentioned the, the Cuban American voters as well, they tend to be successful small business people. And Donald Trump they see as being more friendly to small business people than the Democrats. And so I think that is in large part that would explain it. And also I should say I did speak with a number of Latinos in, in um Arizona, and also when I was doing a lot of border towns last year, uh, and they are very opposed to undocumented workers coming in. They support Donald Trump's hard line on immigration. So it, it's by no means a given in America that, that if you're Latino or Hispanic, that you automatically think that anybody should be able to come in from, from Latin America or South America. A lot of them believe that, no, in fact, that if you bring in all these people who are undocumented and who are uneducated, that it's going to cause problems for them. So nothing, nothing is ever as straightforward, I think, in American politics, as it seems. But at that point, because a lot of Latinos, surprising number, and also black Americans. And I think the, the democratic presumption which Joe Biden, when he said, Well, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black, or, or words to that effect. Uh, it really offends a lot of black people, and rightly so I think, because a number of black people who I vote who I've spoken to who are voting for Trump are doing so because they're deeply religious and they really are troubled by um by abortion rights. Now it's a certain necessarily- believe in a right to choose, but they really feel that the Democratic Party has no home for people who may think that this is a private matter and that, you know, you can respect people's right to choose, but you don't have to be um, pro-abortion yourself. And I think that uh, evangelical... Black Americans do believe that Trump does give more freedom of religion and does give more freedom on on the pro-rights issues and is generally better on those respects. And there are middle-class Black small business owners, likely as well, um, who resent the presumption of being taken for granted by the Democrats and who also feel that maybe a Donald Trump presidency is more friendly to the small business community. So, you know, I think that's another area where, Democrats are are wrong to take these votes for granted.
1: Okay. We're I'm told we're in, we're in our lightning round here because we're almost at the end of time oh, nope. Yeah, <laughs> so you are, are gonna give you, This is the lightning round you have one less than one minute okay. to answer three very quick questions About Joe, about, about Joe <laughs> okay. Biden who we haven't spoken a lot about three quick questions about Joe Biden You have one okay. minute for each of them or less if you can do it one. Why did he win the nomination two? You've covered him. What do you make of him in the Harris-Biden ticket? uh, Sorry, the the Biden-Harris ticket. And three, Joe Biden, will he be good for Ireland if he's president? Three minutes on the three of those quickly.
2: Okay, let's start with the last one. Joe Biden for Ireland. Joe Biden loves Ireland. He never loses an opportunity to quote Heaney and Yates and he always talks about his Irish mother and he has more Irish proverbs at the drop of a hat than I've even heard. Uh, So he's got a great sentimental attachment to Ireland. Will he be good for Ireland? Not necessarily. Uh, He came out last week with a number of proposals that would make it very difficult if they were passed in Congress. For American companies that are, are based in Ireland and that are there for tax reasons and have done inversions and all kinds of things, it would make it much harder, much less appealing for them to stay in Ireland. And it would make other companies, American companies, it would make Ireland much less prop for future investment and to, and to open up new jobs there. So no, he wants to bring all these jobs back to America, not all but most. And so I think that in that sense, Donald Trump just gave a big corporate tax cut and said, okay, get on with it. Uh, but Joe Biden might be more or um, he, he might be less friendly to Irish business and to Irish um, jobs than a Trump presidency. Now, the other two I've forgotten. You're going to have to say them again.
1: What? <laughs> okay. Why did he win the nomination? And what do you make of having covered him? What do you make of Joe Biden?
2: He won the nomination because he was seen as the safe bet in some respects. And people looked at Bernie Sanders as it came down to Biden and Sanders and the other people got knocked out. People thought, Oh no, dear God, no, it can't be Sanders. And also never underestimate, um, what James Tyburn did for him in, in, um, South Carolina because he got the black vote behind him in South Carolina and that flipped the switch for Biden because of that. It was looking very, very like it could be a, a, a Sanders, uh, you know, candidacy. So, and uh, Harris Biden. It's an interesting. Uh, Harris was regarded as Kamala Harris as one of the the likeliest people to become uh, the Democratic nominee. I went to her launch in in January twenty nineteen, and we spoke about this, Larry. There were twenty thousand people in the streets of Oakland in in January. The excitement about her was phenomenal. It was like the her. Her launch rally reminded me of Obama's final rally. Uh, there were that many people there, and there, there was that level of excitement. But she didn't deliver. She's fantastically charismatic. She's got a beautiful smile. She's super smart, and she's a happy warrior, which you need. But she didn't have the policies. She didn't have the substance of an Elizabeth Warren or many of the other people. And so her campaign just petered out. So I think as a running mate, She's good. She's got energy. People like her. She's easy to like, uh, and she's tough as well. And it's it, she's a hard person for Trump to take on and to mock and to belittle, you know. And so I think she gives Biden that pep in his step a little bit. I haven't seen much of them together, but initially it seems like they have a good chemistry. Uh, so we'll see. Biden himself, as a candidate, I think he's a very decent human being. I think he is a. Nice man. Do I think he's a great candidate? No, I don't.
1: Before I go to questions, first here in, in the black box and to our, our viewers online, uh, let's just say thank you to Marion McKeown. Thank you. Thanks. So, are there any questions here? We,
2: we have a, we have a couple of online uh, questions. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two, Marion. So the first one is. Do you think uh, the presidential debates matter and how do you think they will go? And the second question is, if there is going to be a surprise in this election, which state will deliver it?
1: Great questions. Wow. Great questions.
2: They, great questions, both of them. Uh, okay. I think that um, the uh, the debates do still matter, absolutely, but they don't matter as much as they used to because back in the oldie days when you had three networks and everybody watched them, you had 60, 70, 80, 100 million people watching debates. Now people have 100 different channels and live streams. They're not as engaged. They tend to go to social media. They get snippets of things. They don't have the patience to sit through debates. I think that Joe Biden has his work cut out for him in these debates, because Donald Trump will bluster on stage, and he will say black is white, and he will absolutely say whatever he wants. But he has got that ability to connect on TV. He is a master of reality TV, and debates are essentially reality TV, with the intrigue and the fighting and the opposition. Um, Joe Biden is not always deft on his feet. He tends to meander. Bit like me, and he tends to be, um, you know, a little bit too wordy at times. And he, you know, people make a lot of him getting muddled up. Well, we all get muddled up, so what? But I think his inherent decency might come through. I think Biden in a weird way, might be of the moment because, as I said, people crave calm. They almost crave an FDR-type figure, I think, somebody who will be steady, who will be the decent uncle who will tell all the rowdy kids to just calm down. So I think he may meet the moment in that respect. But as I say, for the debates, it's entirely unclear that that he will really be able to... I mean, Trump, whether you like him or not, is a force of nature. and, And he physically occupies is he physically absorbs all the oxygen. So I, I for Biden to look as strong and as tough as Trump on stage, I think that's going to be a hard call. Now, the state that could deliver a surprise, uh, I'd watch Minnesota. Minnesota used to be a democratic state, but the the Republicans are really targeting it with all kinds of sweeteners to do with mining and mineral rights. And, you know, I think that they really do feel they have to win Wisconsin. Uh, they, They really do. And they pretty well have to win Michigan as well. I think they've sort of conceded that Pennsylvania will not go their way this time because Biden is originally from Scranton and he has an appeal to a very strong union worker base in Pennsylvania still. But I, I think that Minnesota, which used to be a reliable blue state, could could possibly turn red. Um, I think another state where oh my God, I do not you know. the there are always a couple of wild cards. Uh, Florida, Florida definitely tends to go much more Republican than Democrat. I think this time, because of the reasons I said, because of old people who suffered from coronavirus, because of military families, it could turn blue. Uh, but I think most of the states, the the die the has been cast in, in most of the states. Uh, of course, every time, Democrats have this fever dream that they're going to get Texas. They're going to get Texas. And they point to these polls where it says, Texas, 45% for Biden, 48% for Trump. They ain't going to get Texas. Texas may be slowly becoming more moderate. But I was talking to a Democratic uh, pollster only two weeks ago, and she said, oh, well, you know, Texas can't be ruled out. And I think, uh, I'm sorry, but <laughs> if, if Texas turns blue, you, I, I will, if I had a hat, I would eat it. <laughs> so I, I, really, I really can't see Texas turning blue at all.
1: Is that it? Okay, well, thanks very much to everyone here in the black box and thanks a million to our viewers. And most of all, thanks to Marion McKeown. She was fantastic. Thanks very much.
2: Thank you so much, Larry. And thank you to everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to First Thought. For more, visit the talks page on Galway International Arts Festival's website, giaf.ie.